smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter. Welcome back, everybody. John Aravosis here with Cliff Schechter. Cliff? Hello, John. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Hot. Not in a good way. Um, <laughs> well, no, we're having nonstop 90-something weather here in D.C., and, of course, today's humid, too, just to add to it. So my apartment in, is... In my is, part of the country, uh, too, I think it's uh, it's pretty pretty hot everywhere, it seems. Yeah, it's just funny because it's like my apartment's cooler than it normally is, and it's still unbearably uncomfortable, which is weird. Humidity. Oh, well. Any case, so today we've got Greg Mitchell joining us. Greg is the author of a dozen books. Um, I know him as the former editor of Editor and Publisher Magazine, which was highly influential under Greg uh, during the during the George W. Bush resistance, uh, when all of us were freaking out about that earlier president, who is not good, but is certainly better than this idiot, I think. Um, but Greg really put Editor and Publisher on the map in the same. I would here's an interesting comparison, Greg. In the same way that Lauren Duca and others put Teen Vogue on the map under Trump. You put editor and publisher on the map under Bush. It was this publication okay. that a lot of us were not familiar with, frankly. And right. Greg just mm-hmm. kept coming out with sort of bombshell after bombshell, really, you know, good messaging and everything else coming after Trump. And we all were like, oh my God. Um, but Greg, we have him on today because Greg is the author of a new book, The Beginning or the End, right? It's not the, it's not the beginning of the end, right, Greg? Right. That's right. The beginning or the end, how Hollywood and America learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. And we're going to get into a discussion on this. It's a uh, a look at, I guess, an effort in the late 1940s of the government in Hollywood getting together to try to sell the bomb to the American people, the atomic bomb. But Greg also has some feelings on how this ties into current day American nuclear politics, et cetera, uh, that we're going to get into. Um, Greg, let me do a quick ad from Omaha Steaks, and then we're going to jump in. All right. Great. Thank you. Hey. Okay. The sizzle of a delicious offering from Omaha Steaks on the Grill is your official soundtrack to the summer. Omaha Steaks offers a variety of options that everyone loves. Steaks, seafood, chicken, pork, burgers, easy-to-make meals, desserts, and more. Right now, Omaha Steaks is offering a limited-time deal. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code LIBERAL into the search bar and order the Grand Summer Grill Out Package today. Order this package and Omaha Steaks will throw in four free burgers. Oh, that is good. And four free gourmet jumbo franks, which I've tasted and they're shockingly to die for. I've never had a thing for hot dogs before. Um, Every order is flash frozen, vacuum sealed, and safely delivered to your door in a cooler with dry ice. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's a culinary masterclass, 100 years of family tradition, exclusive premium beef, aged to peak tenderness, and guaranteed perfection in every bite. Go to omahasteaks.com. Type in liberal in the search bar and order the Grand Summer Grill-Out Package. You'll receive four free burgers and four free Jumbo Franks. Fill your freezer with enough gourmet food to keep your grill fired up all summer long with Omaha Steaks. That's omahasteaks.com and enter the code liberal in the search bar. Greg, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and then we'll jump in more with questions and all that. Okay. Uh, well, we're, we're now in the 75th anniversary summer of the uh, atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <clears throat> so we'll be hearing a lot about this in the coming weeks. Um, and um, after the bombings, um, the, the, there was, of course, a Hollywood uh, response. And um, about two months, uh, two months or so after the bombings, which were wi- widely endorsed by the American public and the media, um, the um, uh, a, a scientist from the Manhattan Project contacted his former 
high school chemistry teach uh, student, Donna Reed, who many oh. of us are remember from yep. movies and television. <clears throat> she was just starting out then and said that the, uh, the, could she help get Hollywood to make a major movie about uh, reflecting the atomic scientists view that the, uh, the U.S. should not oh. develop for further bombs for military purposes, uh, should prevent the going into an arms race with the Soviets, uh, a warning to the world uh, to stop the nuclear era in its tracks. And uh, so Donna Reed, uh, his husband was an agent. He went uh, to uh, MGM, sat down with the legendary uh, studio chief, Louis B. Mayer. And um, Louis B. Mayer said, yes, we'll make such a movie, a, dra a big drama, a big budget. It's going to be the most important movie I've ever made. And uh, and so they started in to make this major movie based on the scientists' warnings uh, and raising concerns about the use of the bomb in, against Japan and, and certainly the developing the bomb going forward. So that's how it started. But then uh, kind of the book follows uh, follows through from that early beginning to how this uh, what could have been an anti a very important uh, sort of anti-bomb epic uh, became uh, perverted and subverted and sabotaged after the MGM gave basically gave script approval to President Truman and to General Leslie Groves, who was the head of the Manhattan Project. So over the following year, uh, as I trace in the book, I've been through all the scripts and documents and letters and outlines and everything else, trace how this movie was then turned into a sort of pro-bomb propaganda. Uh, one other thing I'll just note quickly is that at the same time, Paramount had the same idea. And uh, so the famous producer, Hal Wallace, launched a competing project and uh, believe it or not, he hired as his screenwriter none other than Ayn Rand. Oh wow! <laughs> she she wrote. Uh, that's right. And I went through all her papers and outlines and letters. It's completely huh. wild and wa wacky and uh, very Ayn Randish. Uh, so she uh, started work on a screenplay, and but um, in a few months, uh, Paramount realized that uh, she was not the best pick for this, and so they ended their project and sort of joined in with MGM. But you you did have the 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 book traces this, what we call the first nuclear race of the era, uh, but it was between two Hollywood studios. And, uh, <laughs> and then the book just basically follows through how, again, how the book, how those, the movie was uh, sabotaged. And then Truman, Truman arrives and orders a costly retake. He gets the actor playing him fired um, and, um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and there's a great deal about the famous scientist Einstein and, J. Robert Oppenheimer and how MGM tried to had to get them to sign away their their rights to be portrayed in the movie. Oh wow! Well, there's all kinds also, of wild stuff. Go ahead, Greg. Sorry. Go on. That's okay. I was just saying, I mean, one of the most, if my memory serves, the the kind of most famous efforts against sort of for the arms race and further development of the bomb came from a lot of those very same scientists, right? Who sort of yeah thought they created well. There was there was a. Yeah, there there was this uh, window of about a year, uh, 1946. And again, my my book uh, basically only goes from 1945 to early 1947, and then it catches up to why this is important today, which we can get into. But um, there was this window, and and uh, and and I have actually have a section, and uh, there's always been a, already a major excerpt online talking about John Hersey's Hiroshima article in the New Yorker, which, you know, some people have called the most important uh, magazine piece of the century. 
uh, and uh, that was a, a bombshell, so to speak. Uh, and uh, so, so there was it, was, it was kind of the, the, the what I called the Hiroshima narrative was really up for grabs in a way uh, after this initial total endorsement of the use of the bomb and building more bombs. There was a reconsideration, partly thanks to the Hersey article, and that's why this MGM movie was seen as so dangerous, potentially dangerous. Uh, the people in Washington and the Pentagon and so forth were afraid that it would it would have this sort of uh, anti-bomb or at least skeptical about the bomb message. So they had to do everything to, to sabotage that and make sure it came out as a pro-bomb uh, message. And indeed, um, you know, after... Uh, 1946, uh, these concerns were more or less quieted. And, you know, 74 years later, um, we still see that. We still see the vast majority of people in the media, the officials, um, still endorsing not only the, the use of the bomb against Japan, but its development afterwards and building the H-bomb and, and so on and so forth. So that this this was a narrative that got locked in place. So it, it, is, uh, it is important to study this turning point that uh, – that led to 74 years of pretty much the same uh, same stuff. Now, she right. didn't end up doing it, though, right, Donna? I'm guessing Donna Reed, because I've been Googling and I'm seeing her name, but then not seeing her on the credits. Right. Well, she was she had, uh, had just been signed to do a little movie called uh, Wonderful Life. Uh, well, I was just going to tell you. I never heard of that one. Well, I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew her name, but I I think of her as TV or something. I did not yeah. realize she was Mary on It's a Wonderful Life. And yeah, she was the she was the second Ellie Ewing, the grandma on Dallas, yeah, when yeah. the first decided to come back, so they fired her. Remember the first right. was that well, really she won her Oscar. Actually, she won her Oscar for uh, From Here to Eternity, which is a uh, there know, you go, which I've never seen, but I know of. Great movie. Any case, any case, but right. um, well, she was not in the movie. But she was not in the movie. But her husband was an agent, and he sat down with Louis B. Mayer and et cetera, et cetera. So that was her. So she was a crucial. Crucial. In fact, the book starts with her receiving this letter from this her former chemistry student, our uh, chemistry uh, uh, teacher in high school, and that's how the whole book starts. And it goes on, and then uh, she kind of falls away from the the action. And Hugh Croman was in it too. I saw. Anyway, sorry, I'm just looking at who the actors were that were in. I only knew Hugh Croman. Hume Croman. Yeah, Hume Croman was. Hume Cronin played Oppenheimer, and there's a oh, yeah. hysterical. He writes Oppenheimer. I mean, the, the, you know, um, I mean, it's a lot to go into, but basically, the movie. Became because of these perversions from the all the the changes that had to be made. It, it became that the script became very bad, and um, so I have a hysterical, lengthy quote. Hume Cronin wrote a letter to Oppenheimer, in which he mocked the movie himself, and basically <laughs> said, "I'm trying to do the best job I can with you, but uh, you know, if I say any more, I'm going to get in trouble with the studio." Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, uh, but that's the kind of, uh, I mean, it, the movie, uh, the book is a, you know, it, it's a, it, it, I wouldn't call it a fun read, but it, it, it's a very lively kind of entertaining mm -hmm. read, you might say, because there's this kind of Hollywood craziness, but underlying it is, it raises um, new questions and important questions about mm -hmm. um, the use of the bomb and how the, the things were suppressed afterwards and how America didn't get the full story and, and so on and so forth. So the book kind of balances uh, between this very kind of entertaining thing and a very super, super serious uh, take on that, uh, what, well, what we've been through the last 75 years. I mean, there's a blackout on images, right? Photographs from, yeah. from yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki so that we wouldn't get the idea of what the full Oh, well, back then you mean? Oh, interesting. Well, initially, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of an expert on that subject, but we won't won't go into that here. But <laughs> I'm probably one of the world's leading experts on that subject. But um, but uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, Truman uh, got so involved, he actually supplied the title for the movie uh, when they sat down with him. He said uh, he told the producers, uh, "Gentlemen, make your film and uh, uh, just carry the message that we're either at the beginning or the end." And so, so they supposedly like said, you see? "You've just yeah. titled uh, yeah. our yeah. movie." Now they didn't know he was also titling my book. You know, yeah, exactly. book has the same title, but uh, yeah. I'm sure he'd, 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 he'd be. Yeah, he'd be. Yeah, he'd be embarrassed if he titled this book because the book's uh, awfully critical of him. But um, anyway. Um, so it ended up as the beginning or the end, both the movie and the book. And um, well, I was talking about the photographs there, but I mean, what's I've, another thing that kind of I find interesting is, of course, all we've heard the last thirty plus years, you know, is about liberal Hollywood, um, right, and, right? And of course, you know, leaving out the fact that for a long time, you know, Hollywood lined up with kind of the conservative. Uh, mystique let's call it about america you know that we were Very exceptional much, yeah. and could do no wrong and you know y'all if you was watching those old war movies and i mean i'm not saying that most of the people were especially it's world war ii we were fighting were good guys but man they make our guys into saints you know yeah and um we hadn't reached uh, more realism so hollywood actually i'd say right i mean i don't know if you cover this in the book but you know obviously there was a turning point eventually you know, so maybe some people would call it the day after uh, from that. Or was that the name of it? The movie in the early 80s? Yeah. They would not be able to yeah. sleep at night because, of course, they're like, New York will be one of the first targeted. And I was like, that's nice. I live here. Um, but um, so, I mean, at some point, Hollywood made a decision or I don't know if, if the culture changed that much. I know there's obviously a lot of anti-nuclear activism um, and started moving in a different direction of sort of trying to show the horrors of yeah. – of, well, I mean, the, the interesting the interesting thing is that um, the Hollywood has made, as you note, um, came to make a number of movies about the bomb. You might say, um, you generally science fiction or or uh, taking um, or, or slightly humorous or you know, all we have to do is mention is fail safe. We can mention Doctor Strangelove. Right, of course, we can right. make very various, yeah, even Godzilla uh, in Japan. Um, <laughs> That's right, and, uh, and that was a metaphor for the bomb. Right. Well, and, yeah. and Godzilla was Godzilla not created by the nuclear testing or yes, something? Yes, absolutely. And the, a little, yeah, and the little a lizard turned into Godzilla, right? right. But here, here's the, the kicker: is, is, I think it's funny. Go on. Despite despite all this, Hollywood has only made in 75 years three movies about making the bomb and using the bomb against Japan. Three movies in 75 years and none for the last 30 years. So um, yeah. this is a what what the, the Robert J. Lifton and I did a previous book on the subject. Mm-hmm. We called this the Hiroshima raw nerve. There, there's something about our use of the bomb, which, you know, even though most Americans and most in the media continue to endorse, there's an underlying kind of, I don't know what you call it, guilt, uneasiness, uh, recognizing that uh, you know, we did kill 200,000 civilians, mainly women and children. Uh, and so it's, it's almost like they, you, it's a numbing, you know, you want to turn away from it. So um, there's, uh, that's why Hollywood has failed to really grapple with the subject. So it's important to look at, you know, this movie was the first movie. There was another one about five years later, almost identical, that focused on, also from MGM, that focused on the pilot who dropped the bomb. Um, and then not for another, um, you know, 
30 years, 40 years until uh, Roland Joffe made Fat Man and Little Boy, um, which came out around 1990. And uh, and its story was sabotaged because he, he hired Paul Newman to play General Groves. Um, so the movie, even though Joffe didn't want this, it was tilted towards the pro-bomb view. So, but that's it. I mean, you know, that is it for Hollywood. Three movies in, in 75 mm. years. So, so you know that this subject is incredibly sensitive for Americans. You know, um, the only but but I can I guess I can understand that though. At first, I was surprised, thinking, God, it would be such an interesting topic to take on and controversial and all that. But but up until now, when we're having sort of this great awakening on a lot of these issues, I could see a lot of people in Hollywood going, "Really, we're going to do a you know a, a movie saying we were the bad guys or partially bad guys in World War II? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, but that makes for that makes for courage. That's courage and it's honesty and it's showing the full. I think it's all they have to do is show actually. the full picture. Yeah, it's all quite I have to do is show the full actually. picture. Yeah. yeah, yeah, show the full picture. I, I, I would never say, look, mate, you have to make a bomb that, that just tears apart the, the decision to use the bomb and everyone. We're bad guys and everything like this. But to totally ignore it, uh, and when you do, when you hmm. do do it, you totally endorse it. So um, that's the, you know, that's the, uh, that's the issue. You know, you know, something down the line, down the, you know, uh, down the line, honest look at it. And but worth covering don't all ignore the it. questions, yeah. right? Because there's a lot of questions there. There are some generals yeah. who are opposed to its use at the time. Um, there also was a lot of military in favor, and estimates have always differed on, you know, if, look, if we'd had to do a land invasion of Japan, how many, you know, American soldiers were in? <clears> we had been in pitched battles in, you know, places like Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal. How many would die? And that's still sort of debated, you know, with yeah. – I don't know that we know for sure, but it, you know, if I were taking the pro bomb view, and by the way, I'm not, I'm just throwing this out there. You know, there are people who would make the argument that certainly, at the very least, many thousands of American lives would have been lost, and yeah. you know, for a war that we didn't start. And is that, you know, is that fair? Uh, on the other side of things, there's certainly I've heard people who've taken the nuanced arguments of, at the very least. After we saw the dev- we saw the devastation wrought by that first bomb, we didn't need to drop the second one just a few days later. You know that maybe right. we could have waited and sort of said, "This is what we can do to you," um, and you know, and and that's where it comes out that you know the, you start hearing that there was potentially some of it was racist. Would we have ever done that yeah. to Germany? Yeah. You know, you start hearing that some of that was potentially already a war- meant as a warning to the Soviet Union because the Cold War was already, you know, even beginning at the end of the Second World War. And it was sort of, here's what we can do to you. Um, yeah. you know, there, obviously well, it's interesting this- you, met, you, mentioned, you mentioned Nagasaki, which is interesting because, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are many people who, who will endorse the use against Hiroshima, but they think Nagasaki is essentially a war crime. Uh, and um, But what's very revealing, and there's numerous other things in the uh, in the movie, along these lines but they actually as the scripts were developed by the end there was not even a single mention of nagasaki in the movie they cut out every reference to it you'd watch the movie you'd never know we dropped a second bomb and that shows how again how uh that was how nervous america is with telling the the full story and it's like nothing could be more revealing than here's the okay well hiroshima you know Maybe it was okay, but Nagasaki is nasty. Well, let's let's just get let's get rid of it. <laughs> so, right. you know, um, so that I mean that that's that's a perfect representation of what the movie does. 
Uh, in terms of the decision to drop the bomb that you mentioned, again, that's a separate, whole separate program we could have, or, or three or four. Right. But, you know, the, the whole thing with the, and, and again, the, the movie itself reflects every argument you just made um, for the use of the bomb. That's all was added to the movie, every argument, including the number of American lives that would have been lost. And this has been, uh, you know, something that's been debated. And uh, unfortunately, it, it's what most of the historical and media debate has been, well, would we have lost a million or would we have lost half a million or 200,000? You know, there's different evidence and so forth, which is all true. However, you know, the main point is that, and which most people don't know, is that the invasion wasn't even planned until November or even later in the year. Um, and so the bomb was dropped like four months before an invasion. People, the way people picture it in the media uh, is often, well, we were on the verge. Uh, my dad was in the Pacific. We were ready to right. uh, ready to enter, and the bomb, in the nick of time, you know, prevented this invasion, which couldn't be further from the truth. So the question is, would that invasion have ever happened? Uh, and, and you know, as you mentioned, there's all sorts of arguments about. Uh, uh, that the bomb, that, that the war could have ended uh, in the same time period uh, because the Russians had finally entered the war at our insistence. Uh, because if we had changed our uh, demand instead of unconditional surrender, if we had said, okay, you can keep, keep your emperor, uh, which we did after we dropped the two bombs. Uh, so there's all sorts of people, including hawks like, you know, James McCloy and, or John McCloy right. and others. Um, and Eisenhower, you know, sort of uh, Eisenhower was uh, totally against the use of the bomb, which he expressed both before oh, the use of the bomb and years yeah. afterwards. And the reasoning was the war could have ended in this view very, very shortly after when it did end, if we had waited for the Russians to enter and if we had uh, let them keep their figurehead emperor. And so that's where the controversy comes in. Instead, it comes down to, well, you know, we lost all these lives in an invasion. That would have never happened. You know, once we tested the bomb, and we're coming up right. on another anniversary here, July 16th, the successful test of the bomb at Trinity. Um, once we tested the bomb and knew we had, had a few more or would have a few more, there wasn't one chance in a thousand that Truman would have ever launched an invasion. Um, it, was, it became a question of, you know, when to use the bomb. Um, and if he had waited, you know, uh, three weeks or, you know, two weeks or something and then used it, there'd be a lot less controversy today. But instead, he rushed to use it against uh, over the center of the city of Hiroshima and then uh, did not stop it being used right. against Nagasaki. So that's where the that's where the historical debate is. Uh, could Truman have waited a day, a week, uh, you know, a month uh, instead of rushing ahead and setting this precedent for the world? that these weapons can be used despite all our, our, our hype that, oh, we can never use them again. Uh, they must never be used again. But well, let's keep 5,000 on hair trigger alert and, and have a first strike policy. Um, so that's what this set in motion. Okay, actually, Greg, let me just jump right in. I, I was being, we were being so entranced with you that I skipped our second ad entirely. Um, <laughs> that's that's how that was my idea, you, like that. you know. That was but my that's idea. good. <laughs> I mean, well, it's not good for the advertisers, but I mean, it shows we're into you. Um, Cliff, give us a quick message from Plexiderm, and depending how how quickly you go, I might even do the clean phone too, just so we get it out of the way, and then we'll come back right. to Greg. What he's talking about. <laughs> all right, folks. So you know what we all hate when social media pop up pop ups. Zoom eyes. Yes, you know we're getting to that. When social media pops up with a summer vacation pic from five years ago, and oh my God, we have wrinkles, bags around our eyes, delete. 
Not this summer. No more pop-up picks with deep wrinkles, fine lines, and bag under my bags under my eyes. No, I didn't get surgery. I got Plexiderm. Plexiderm, folks, it's a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags, all in the comfort of your home in minutes. Plexiderm goes on clear and lasts for hours, so nobody will know your secret. Um, go to tryplexiderm.com and use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional $10 off. So that's half plus 10. Or try a $14.95 trial pack, $14.95, I should say, trial pack today by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mention the code VOICES. Again, visit triplexiderm.com, use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle plus an additional $10 off, or the $14.95 trial package when you use the code VOICES and call 1-800-685-1292. Use Plexiderm. You'll love how you look and feel this summer, folks. Zoom, when you're using Zoom or looking in the mirror or in photos. All right. Okay, you know what? And I'm going to do clean phone because there's supposed to be two ads in the middle. We're getting it out of the way. And then, Greg, I swear to God, there are no more interruptions other than my dog uh, or Cliff's drumming child. But um, all right, clean phone. The dramatic <laughs> rise in COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations is alarming. Three exclamation points, folks, which means it's really alarming. <laughs> I hate exclamation points as an editor. Greg, Greg will appreciate that. Half the states of the nation, including some of our largest, most popular states, have increased caseloads. California has already mandated wearing face masks when outdoors. Even the governor of Texas is strongly advocating wearing face masks. How do you keep yourself and your family safe? Three question marks, which means it's a serious question. Um, beyond face masks, one of the biggest carriers of bacteria and virus is your cell phone. But with a clean phone and its use of UVC light technology, the same technology used in hospitals to keep our first responders safe, you can sanitize your phone, earbuds, jewelry, credit cards, even car and house keys in minutes, killing 99.9% .9 of bacteria and viruses as well. Right now, the clean phone comes with free two-day shipping, and you can add KN95 face masks to your order as well for extra. We all need to defend ourselves and our family against the increasing COVID infection rates. Go to the newdealshop.com and purchase the clean phone now. Get one for your home and another for your office. Go to, of course, who's going to really be in their office right now, but this is for later. <laughs> Get one for Christmas when you're back in your office. Christmas of 2022. Go to the newdealshop.com and order the clean phone and stock up on the masks. Be prepared. Stay well. That's the newdealshop.com. Woo! Ads. You have been defeated. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Well, the thing right. is, they're like perky ads, too. It's like, and now back to nuclear war. <laughs> All right. After you make your face look good with Plexiderm and your phone's doing well, let's talk well, news. Greg, let me – and I, I, I want to drag you into some of the discussion because I think it's really interesting that you're up on this stuff. And it, it let's remind people again, the title of Greg's new book is The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And it's about a, a – well-known, which I did not know, but I Googled it and saw that it was a well-known propaganda campaign uh, that the military reached out to Hollywood in the late 40s to basically promote the atomic bomb. Greg, I know this is a huge question. I don't know if you've got a you know, concise answer, but why did Truman use the bomb? I mean, I was surprised to hear, like you said, that Eisenhower was against it. I'm not up on my bomb history, really, but that was interesting to me, being a general and all of that. Why was Truman, why did he use it? Well, there, there's all sorts of... Uh, if it wasn't necessary, but, I mean, yeah. Well, I, I think he, the, I mean, I think he felt, he, he felt partly it was necessary. I mean, the, 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 the real background is, is, is the, 
quite is the possibility that he actually knew it was not really necessary, but there was so much momentum. You know, they spent two billion dollars on this project. Uh, FDR died in April. Truman took over. Truman did not didn't even know about the Manhattan Project, if you can believe that. So he wasn't he was clued wow. in after Roosevelt died. Wow. And he was uh, I mean he was a U.S. senator, but he was not a uh, you know a towering figure, let's say. And he didn't have uh, Roosevelt's gravitas or. Um, and, and he was described by uh, General Groves, who was the real mastermind of using the bomb, as like a little boy on a toboggan uh, in this period right. where he was had to make this momentous decision. Uh, so he was susceptible to, to all sorts of influences and could be led one way or another, and he was led by various people. Um, but, you know, the key, the key thing in a way... Um, I mean, there are two two key things in a way. I mean, first of all, it's understandable at the end of this, uh, near the end of this horrible war where so many tens of millions died, uh, many of them civilians, that there was a certain numbing, there was a certain let's get this over with, let's end the carnage, you know, what's two more cities and, you know, 200,000 more women and kids. Um, uh, so there was that certain numbing to, to that, uh, which is, you know, somewhat understandable. Um, but the other thing was, you know, what did he did? Did he really think that this was totally necessary? Because he was being advised that if you know if we if we uh, modified our unconditional surrender demand, um, the Japanese might surrender rather quickly. Uh, he also, when he went to this famous Potsdam conference in mid July um, and met with Stalin. Um, he um, he was told then by Stalin, yes, we will enter the war, you know, in in early August. Um, and Truman knew well, himself. They already had entered diary. the war, hadn't they? <laughs> yeah, he twice he, so he wrote, had two yeah. entries in his diary where he yeah. said, uh, the, I mean, the most famous entry was he said, when the Russians enter the war, finny Japs when that occurs, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that was minus the atomic bomb. Uh, he made another similar entry to that. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had an entry in his diary in that in that the same week about uh, the Japanese. They're, they, they're hearing that the Japanese want to surrender, and um, you know, thank God we'll save all these lives again, minus the atomic bomb. So, uh, what you know, what level of uh, Truman's brain was functioning or, or keeping things in certain compartments? Uh, uh, we, you know, we don't know, but certainly he was aware that the um, there were options. Uh, and rather serious options, right. Um, right. but he did not pursue them partly because you know he was like he said he was like a little boy on a toboggan, as General right. Grove said. No, but we did not. And again, I don't mean to be naive about this. I just have not spent a lot of time looking at the nuclear history of World War II. But yeah. did we not present any kind of ultimatum before we dropped the bomb? And were they arguing that security-wise we couldn't if we didn't? Yeah, the Potsdam out of the Potsdam. Uh, meeting, which I just described, we had right. an ultimatum, you know, uh, we will, you know, we, you must surrender unconditionally or yes, we will, we you know, you will face, uh, you know, destruction. There was no specific warning of the bomb. Uh, right. There was no, you know, many of the scientists called for a demonstration of the bomb. They said, look, uh, instead of killing all these people, let's, you know, we'll have a demonstration shot and Japan will surrender right away. Now, I don't know if that would have happened, but, right. um, was but, it just doing you know, it again, is what you're saying kind of thing? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Doing it off the coast as a sort of demonstration. Yeah, that was yeah, yeah, that was that was an idea. You know, I mean, and again, there's so there's so many avenues to go down here. But you know, the fact is, we we targeted, you know, as as the movie um, 
tried to tried to say, and as certainly Truman and others said, um, calling these two cities military bases, um, and they they wanted to, to communicate to the American people that basically we dropped. Uh, the two bombs on military sites and, you know, yeah, a lot of people died, but what can you do? Right. When in, in fact, these two cities were chosen as targets uh, because they had large numbers of people and we targeted the very centers of the city. We didn't target, uh, uh, you know, a naval base on the outskirts or anything like right. that. We targeted the very centers of the city. And, you know, Hiroshima did have a military base, but thanks to the targeting, you know, 85% of the casualties were, were civilians, and Nagasaki did not really have a major base. And, you know, it's been estimated that roughly 100, 150 people who died of the 100,000 there were military. The other 99% were civilians, you know, again, mainly women and kids. Uh, and that's because of the targeting. So, in that sense, we did. If you want to say we did everything wrong, we didn't wait. We didn't wait to, to see if Japan would surrender in the in the near future. Uh, we targeted the very center of the, the cities. There was no pause between Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and then after we did it, we sort of lied and said that they these were military bases. And then even uh, in the weeks after, when so many people were dying of radiation disease, um, we mocked it. Uh, General Groves famously said. Uh, uh, I hear it's it's I hear it's a wonderful way to die. Uh, so you know there was then this months period where we suppressed all the footage, we suppressed all the photos. We right. uh, yes, there were press reports, but they were very uh, very vague in terms of uh, depicting what actually happened on the ground. To hear the rest of this episode, become a premium subscriber to the Unprecedented Podcast by going to patreon.com slash unprecedentedpodcast. And with a $5 a month or more subscription, you not only support the show, but you get access to this episode and all of our premium episodes, including all of our great guests. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your support.